and welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hey everyone. And as you know by now, we record a couple of weeks before the episode airs, so I'm guessing that at this point things are mostly back to normal and I am still struggling to get used to leaving the house. Oh, me too. Mm-hmm. Oh, just the idea of going to like the grocery store or being around like a, a large group of people. Oh, I don't like it anymore. I get anxiety watching people's stories who are like out at bars and yeah. like clubs. I'm like, what? What are you doing? <laughs> get back home. Get back home. Stop it. Yeah, it's going to take some getting used to. And I used to be a social butterfly. Oh, like, God, you guys don't even know. <laughs> I used to love like the bigger the crowd, I want to be involved in that. Sandy thrived in Mm -hmm. large crowds yeah and now i don't want any part of it i Mm -mm. think it's gross now yeah now that there's this all this talk about like virus and how things spread i'm just like oh my gosh now i just feel gross i don't think you i've had talked to you about it but um tim got us tickets to go to a padres game Mm -hmm. and bless his heart but he thought that so Petco Park is set up in sections. Mm-hmm. You've got the non-vaccinated section and then a vaccine and vaccinated section. Do you really? Yeah. Wow. And so um, we're vaccinated. So yeah. he thought our best route would be to go in the vaccinated section. And the way that they have it set up is it's actually kind of crazy. So if you don't, ha- you have to have a negative COVID test um, and it has to be within the last 72 hours. Mm-hmm. which already to me is like 72 hours like i don't know what you did then. within those 72 hours so that's the first way to get into the or the vaccinated area it's mm-hmm. vaccinated or co- or negative covid test okay. area so you have to have one and if you don't have one you can take one for 25 dollars at petco it's a rapid test so oh. you go in or like you pay or whatever yeah. You get your test, and then that's your for way $25? into for twenty five dollars. Which I'm like, that's I've done super it for a hundred and fifty exactly. before. And in those sections, you still have to wear your mask, and but there is no restriction on how close someone mm. could be to you, or like there's no empty rows mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, so we went into that section. I had so many problems. The first one was that whole seventy two hour window because I don't know what's going on within those seventy two hours. Mm-hmm. The second was that when we came in, even though we had the tickets for the vaccinated section, they're supposed to be checking either your vaccination card or your COVID test. Mm -hmm. They didn't check either of ours. And so Uh then I'm like, well, what's the point then? (laughs) What are we doing here? So anyways, we ended up going in. There was people directly in front of me, directly behind me and directly next to me. Mm -hmm. And even though you're supposed to be with your mask on the entire time, there's the exception of unless you're eating or drinking. And everyone's and eating so or everyone's drinking at the game. quote unquote, eating or drinking. And so no one had their masks on around me. And I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't <laughs> handle being around that many people. At that point, I was like, if we ever come back and there's still restrictions, I would rather go into the non-vaccinated area because in those, it's... Um, there's a seat. Oh, there's, there's a row. Distance. There's still social distance. So I would feel safer in the <laughs> non-vaccinated area than I felt in the vaccinated area. And I was like, I can't do this. This is just too much. It's just too much. So I'm hoping that as things start to go back to normal, we can all take some time to reflect on what a year it's been and remember all the things that we learned to appreciate when we had little to celebrate. So I still think back and think, damn, that was kind of crazy. Like we spent <laughs> over a year in quarantine. Yeah. And I've spent most of my married life in quarantine. 
That's true. I got married in November, mm-hmm. went on our honeymoon, came back in late November, and then we went into lockdown in March. So we had a couple of months, but I mean, it was like the holidays and stuff. So we didn't really do anything. Yeah. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to start doing the things we had hoped to do before we went into lockdown. But I do think it's important for us to kind of like look back and think of all the things we grew to appreciate Mm -hmm. when we had really nothing going on. Yeah. And that maybe it gets easier to leave the house, but I don't see that changing anytime soon. I really like staying home now. Mm -hmm. I've appreciated that. I don't think I appreciated that before. I think I always wanted to be out. I always wanted to be with as many people as I could be with, mm-hmm. which is fine. But I never appreciated just slowing down and being home. And now I do. Yeah. I'll go to a restaurant, maybe a movie, but that's it. I don't even care for restaurants anymore. I'd rather True, just it's so be loud. in the comfort of my home. Yeah, I'd rather <laughs> eat the good food here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that being said... This is your weekly reminder that although we've gotten mostly past the pandemic, our criminal justice system is still flawed and we have a lot to work on. (laughs) You know, like... Thanks for that stuff. Yeah, it's just your daily dose of reality (laughs) or your weekly dose of reality. Your weekly dose of sadness. Yeah. Yeah. Although this one is sad, but it has a happy ending. Okay. So that's kind of what I have to do now. Is Find um, happy ending stories. Yeah, because I can't do the really sad ones. Your episode was incredibly sad i know i i think but I it could have choose. a happy ending we'll see anyways listen to sandy's episode this week i will be telling you the story of two brothers who despite there being no physical evidence against them were convicted of the rape and murder of a girl in their town it was on september 26 of 1983 that a family friend discovered the unclosed body of 11 year old sabrina buey lying in a field in red springs North Carolina, a small town in Robeson County, which happened to be one of North Carolina's most impoverished rural counties. Sabrina had been badly beaten and raped and was left with her bra pushed up and around her neck. The perpetrator had stuffed Sabrina's underwear down her throat with a stick, causing her to die from suffocation. Mm. The perpetrator left beer cans, cigarettes, and bloody sticks nearby, but they would not be tested until many years later. As police officers began looking for suspects, they focused on people from out of town, thinking that whoever had done this was someone not from around there. One officer came across a high school student by the name of Ethel Firmage, who would tell him a rumor that would set the two brothers down this awful road. Ethel told the officer that she had heard that Henry McCollum, the new boy in town, had been involved in the crime. So a little bit about Henry. Henry McCollum had been raised in public housing by his grandmother in New Jersey, and was surrounded by his cousins, aunts, and uncles. He had been diagnosed with intellectual disabilities at a young age, and in grade school had been placed in a school for the mentally retarded. Now, don't come at me. This is how children were labeled back then, Mm -hmm. not what we're calling him now. Mm -mm. Having failed several grades, he decided to drop out of school, but had never gotten into any trouble. At 19, Henry had gone to Red Springs to visit his mother who lived there at the time. So again, he was raised by his grandmother in New Jersey and just happened to be in Red Springs visiting at that time. Police had already interviewed Henry when they heard this rumor, and Henry had already told them that he had nothing to do with the murder and had last seen Sabrina two days earlier as she was walking to the store. Two days later, three police officers would show up at Henry's mother's house and demanded that Henry go with them to the station. He followed them out the door, not knowing that it would be the last time he would be free for more than 30 years. 
Once at the police station, Henry was taken into an interrogation room with the three officers. One of them was SBI agent Leroy Allen, who helped collect evidence at the crime scene and attended the autopsy. And because this was before there were laws requiring video or audio recordings of interrogations, there is no recording of what went on in that room. Mm. Yeah. After four and a half hours of intense questioning, Henry had signed a confession that he only vaguely understood. It was full of details that SBI agent Allen already knew, including the brands of cigarettes and beer left at the crime scene, as well as a flower pattern on Sabrina's clothing. His confession also matched the autopsy findings about how Sabrina had been murdered. Henry had signed the confession after being told that if he told them what they wanted to hear, he would be let go. After signing his name at the bottom of the confession, written for him by a police officer, Henry asked if he could go home. Mm-hmm. Which obviously, like, he's being fed all of these details by the police officers. Mm-hmm. In that confession, Henry implicated three other boys, one of whom was his 15-year-old brother, Leon Brown. By pure coincidence, Leon had shown up at the police station with his mother, who had been waiting in the lobby while police questioned Henry. When Henry finally came out of the interrogation room shortly after 2 a.m., another group of police had already started questioning Leon. They brought Henry into the room where Leon was being questioned and was forced to tell his brother about the confession he had just made. Leon, like his brother Henry, had learning disabilities and was illiterate, which made him extraordinarily vulnerable to coercion. Just half an hour later, Leon had signed his own false confession. Police went back to Ethel Firmage, the teenager who pointed the finger at Henry originally, and only five days after they were both charged, her story had changed. She said she had no knowledge of Sabrina's murder and had only identified Henry as a suspect because she thought he looked funny. What? It's because he was the new boy in town and no one really oh. knew him. And there was, and, and he had intellectual, he had intellectual disabilities. disabilities. So everyone was like, that guy's a weirdo. Oh. The change in her story came far too late because the prosecution of Henry and Leon had already started. Yeah, because there was already a confession. Yeah. <sighs> and investigators had no intention of turning back. Investigators had plenty of red flags to keep them from going down the road they were on. For example, although Henry and Leon's descriptions of the crime scene were mostly accurate because they were being fed information, Mm -hmm. their confessions conflicted one another in very significant ways. Discrepancies included who had been involved, how they met up with Sabrina, as well as the details of how the crime had been carried out. But the biggest red flag and discrepancy was the fact that the other two boys implicated in the confessions had clearly not been involved. In fact, one had been out of state at the time of the crime. Police were never able to collect any evidence against the other boys, and neither of them had ever been arrested or charged. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so they have these confessions of, like, what happened, Mm -hmm. but they don't match up, Mm -hmm. and the people implicated were not even around. Yeah. And yet... They're just going to move forward with it. chugging along. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition to ignoring the problems with the brothers' confessions, the state withheld critical evidence that might have helped Henry and Leon prove their innocence. Their defense attorneys never saw Ethel's conflicting statements or a lie detector showing that a trial witness who accused Henry had no knowledge of the murder. They didn't see a document showing that the state failed to follow through on efforts to find the owner of an unidentified fingerprint left at the crime scene, which they knew did not belong to Henry or Leon. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, yes, you can imagine. In fact, had they run the fingerprint comparisons, they may have identified the real killer before they had even been convicted. Oh my gosh. By law, all these documents should have been turned over to the defense team, but never were. 
Without all of the documents and without recordings of the interrogations, it was impossible for Henry and Leon's defense attorneys to discredit false claims that they had volunteered all of the details in their confessions. In 1984, a year after they signed their confessions, Henry and Leon faced a joint trial. The prosecutor was Joe Freeman Britt, a man with a reputation he intended to maintain. He was pursuing the death penalty in the case, and his pursuit had made him a national celebrity. He had been elected district attorney in 1974 in a county that had not sent anyone to death row in nearly three decades, but after only a year on the job, he had won more death sentences than any prosecutor in the country. Whoa, that's dangerous. Yes. He would... Hold on, this gets easier. He would put on an act for the jury by thumping a Bible and waving the victim's bloody clothes, and eventually he would end up in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the deadliest DA. No. Yes. That's not something that's we not okay. give people awards for. But honestly, the Guinness Book of World Records was my shit. It was mine too. I, I loved those copies. books. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like I asked for it for my birthday. The one that always fascinated me. I don't know why is the lady who grew out her fingernails and they were wrapped like a snail. Mm-hmm. I can't. I don't know why <laughs> that image is still so vivid. That and the really, the really tall, the tall guy. guy. It's so crazy. DA Britt would lead training sessions for other prosecutors in which he advised them to go after them and tear that jugular out. Oh, so he wanted blood. Yeah. Yeah. That's and he loved the attention that he was getting. I'm sure. And so that made him want it even more. Sabrina's rape and murder seemed like the perfect case to pull out all the stops and get a conviction. So he ignored evidence that pointed away from Henry and Leon and towards a man who was a serial predator who he himself had just tried for murder a few weeks earlier and instead relied on the flawed confessions to continue his fight against Henry and Leon. So there was a guy in this town, which we'll get into, but there was a guy in this town who he had tried for murder Mm -hmm. for a very similar crime just a few weeks earlier. And all of the evidence pointed towards that guy but Mm -hmm. he just wanted this conviction they had already started down the path with henry and leon and so he was just gotta finish it yep gotta finish it henry would take the stand and proclaim his innocence but he was no match for brit in his theatrics in his closing arguments brit stood silent in front of the jury for five minutes the amount of time he guessed it took sabrina to suffocate to death the jury sentenced the brothers to die and at only 16 years old Leon became death row's youngest resident. Wow. 16. Jeez. Yeah. In 1991, the North Carolina Supreme Court decided that Henry and Leon were entitled to separate trials. And at his second trial, Leon's defense attorneys were able to persuade the judge to dismiss the murder charge. Leon was then only convicted of rape and resentenced to life. Unfortunately, Henry had signed a more damning confession and his attorneys decided that his best option would be to take responsibility for the crime and ask for the jury's mercy. And although Henry had maintained his innocence all these years, his team also convinced him to plead guilty. The strategy, of course, backfired and the second jury sentenced him to death. Mm -hmm. In 1994, in an opinion having nothing to do with Henry's case, U.S. Supreme Court Scalia cited Henry's case as the type of crime that makes the death penalty a necessity in the United States. In parentheses, in capital letters, I put LOL. I don't like Scalia. Does anyone? No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) In 2010, Henry's face appeared on a political flyer distributed to thousands of North Carolina voters attacking legislators who had voted for a new law that allowed death row inmates to bring forward evidence of racial bias in death penalty trials. It falsely warned that the law would allow people like Henry to get out of prison. 
Again, yeah. LOL. Oh the flyer read, get to know Henry McCollum. He raped and murdered an 11-year-old child. Oh, uh, you know what's frustrating right now that I think about it? Because Scalia's passed away. So he can't see that these he was boys, he was wrong. And that these boys were actually innocent. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's frustrating. You know when he died? Because um, this was, um, they were, their sentence was vacated in 2014. So he may have gotten a chance to do this because oh, this was in 94. I hope, I hope, I hope. 2016. Unfortunately, he never made any kind of official statement um, and kind of just threw it back on the justice system being flawed. Yeah, he says that the justice system is flawed and, and it's expected that we're going to prosecute people mistakenly. But he never made a comment specifically regarding this case and what he said regarding the case. Um, and then he passed away two years after but at least we know he got to see this unfold. Yeah, I think that was really important. Um, Even and if he then, doesn't comment on it, we know he saw. It's also really important for us to see this so that we can continue disliking him. <laughs> what ended up getting lost during all of those false confessions and trials was the truth that police never investigated in Sabrina's murder. Just three weeks after Sabrina's murder, but before the start of the first trial, another young woman turned up dead in a field in Red Springs. Much like Sabrina, 18-year-old Joanne Brockman had been raped and beaten, asphyxiated, and left nude except for a sweater and bra that had been pushed up around her neck. So, I mean, almost identical. Mm -hmm. Also like Sabrina, her body had been dragged through a field and abandoned. Unlike Sabrina's case, however, was the fact that in this case, the culprit was clear. Roscoe Artis, who had recently moved to Red Springs to live with his sister, whose home just so happened to be near where Sabrina's body had been found. Several witnesses put Artis with Brockman just before her death, and when he was picked up by police, he had her blood on his shirt, and at this point confessed to her rape and strangulation. Okay. So that one was pretty clear cut. Mm -hmm. Only a month before Henry and Leon's trial, Joe Freeman Britt tried Artis for Brockman's murder in Robeson County. Artis, unlike Henry and Leon, who had no history of violent crime, had three past convictions for rapes and assaults on women. In 1974, one of his victims testified in court that Artis had grabbed her from behind on the street and that when she refused to go into the woods with him, he choked her and threatened to kill her. Luckily, another person happened upon them in the street and he stopped. At the time of Brockman's murder, Artis had also been suspected of another murder in Gaston County. Bernice Moss was found nude except for a bra and blouse, had been raped and beaten beyond recognition with a stick, and had an object lodged in her throat. Authorities never prosecuted Artis for her murder, but only because he had already been sentenced to death in Brockman's murder. So why all of this happened before the brothers' first trial, Mm -hmm. and no one said, hey, I think we're going down the wrong road. It's so similar what happened to these other two women. Mm-hmm. And the only reason he wasn't prosecuted for Bernice Moss was because he had already been sentenced to death. And a lot of people say it's not worth going to trial and putting yeah. the family through it and spending all of the money. So I get that. Like, I get that he was already going to be in prison for this. But if you've got two people who are being tried for a murder that's so similar to mm-hmm. to these, why? Why not say, hey, like... <laughs> I think we've got the wrong people. We should probably stop and take another take another right. look, especially because they had a cigarette butt, they had a beer can, and they had a fingerprint that mm-hmm. didn't match the two boys. They were just being stubborn at this point. They didn't run it at all, the fingerprint. They just knew it didn't match the boys. And but they didn't like, okay, compare we'll just leave it alone now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The similarities in the killings of Joanne Brockman and Sabrina Bowie were impossible to miss. 
So much so that local police did take a note of them. Days before Henry and Leon's trial began, the Red Springs Police Department sent a request to the State Bureau of Investigation asking the lab to test whether the single unidentified fingerprint, the one left on a beer can at the scene of the crime, belonged specifically to Roscoe Artis. Mm-hmm. So this is bad because it's not that they didn't know. Yeah. They knew something was going on. Yeah. And it's not like they asked them to compare it to like a database. Mm-hmm. They asked specifically to compare it to Roscoe's. Yeah. Which means they knew. Yeah. Before the comparison could be completed, Britt decided to move ahead with Henry and Leon's trial and won a conviction based on coerced confessions and without once mentioning Roscoe Artis. Mm -hmm. The fingerprint request was eventually canceled and the investigation into Roscoe Artis' involvement in Sabrina's killing ended before it ever truly began. Artis, who had been sentenced to death for Joanne Brockman's murder, ended up befriending Henry and Leon on death row No, and would regularly tell other prisoners that Henry and Leon were innocent. Stop. I know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I know. I know. It's just, I don't understand why there's not this, like, checklist of things that the judge is like, did you do X, Y, Z? Did you, there's a fingerprint here. Did you compare it in the database? Like, I, I feel like this has to be this universal way to investigate cases and make sure that all the T's are crossed and I's mm-hmm. are dotted. Just so that we, you don't end up in a situation like this. This is so easily solvable, 100%. but they're ignoring it. And it's so common. What's crazy is that Roscoe, so basically Roscoe, Sabrina lived like in between Roscoe and the brothers. Mm. She was like right in the middle. So although someone pointing the finger at Henry, who's new in town, who they yeah. think is kind of weird, could make... Personally, I think it's fucked up. I don't think that this girl should have been spreading this yeah. rumor that she heard. But okay, fine. Like she's a kid. She heard this thing in school or whatever. And she happens to mention it. It's not her fault that police ignore evidence mm-hmm. pointing away from them. Like that's not on her. But you have someone who is has a rap sheet of sexual assault and you know whatever yeah and you're just choosing to be like yeah it's fine don't run it wasn't the prince. Him. yeah don't run the prints cancel everything we're moving ahead cancel with the brothers. cancel cancel i gotta win this yeah by september of 2014 more than 30 years had passed since police first knocked on henry's door the naive teenager was now a middle-aged man and was the longest serving inmate on the state's death row Both Henry and Leon had been attacked while serving their sentence, and Leon had been repeatedly sexually assaulted by the other prisoners. Oh, my gosh. On death row, Henry spent decades watching his friends be hauled off to the execution chamber. And when DNA testing became available in the 1990s, Henry asked that the evidence in his case be tested. Later, in 2005, a single cigarette butt from the crime scene yielded a DNA profile, and although it did not belong to Henry or Leon, due to the limitations in the testing method— the result could not be compared with DNA profiles of other known criminals. And due to this lack of a definitive match, the test result was not deemed to be enough to overturn their convictions. How is that a thing? It's so infuriating because it's like, well, it wasn't you, but tell us who it is and then we'll let you out. That's not how it should work. It's like, well, it wasn't you, so you shouldn't be here. Mm Mm-hmm. Leon submitted a request to the Innocence Inquiry Commission, which committed many years and thousands of dollars to their case. Unlike Henry and Leon's defense attorneys, the commission commanded the funding and the legal authority to pursue lost evidence, demand documents, interview suspects, and most importantly, retest the cigarette butt and compare the result with the state's criminal database. 
It was that testing in early 2014 that finally turned up a DNA match to Roscoe Artis. And although Henry was excited by his attorney's hopes that they could now prove his innocence, he also felt betrayed by Artis, who he had considered a friend. Mm. At the hearing in September of 2014, Henry stared blankly as the commission staff detailed the new evidence. The Robeson County District Attorney, Johnson Britt, a distant cousin of Joe Freeman Britt, told the judge that he no longer had any credible evidence against Henry or Leon. He said that new DNA test results identified a third party as the killer, and the judge took a rare step of not just granting the brothers a new trial, but declaring them innocent. Good. And that's so hard to get them to do. Yeah. You never see that. Never. It's usually a whole mm-hmm. mess that takes years again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The courtroom was packed with lawyers and reporters, with people from Red Springs and members of Henry and Leon's extended families who had traveled across the country to be there with them. Absent from the courtroom was Henry and Leon's mother and grandmother, who had passed away before their convictions can be vacated. That's awful. Mm -hmm. Oh, that poor mom. I know. She lost both her kids when they were so young. Mm -hmm. How many years were they in prison? 31. Oh, my gosh. Mm Mm-hmm. Sitting directly behind Henry was Isaac Beverly Lake Jr., a former chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court who had voted to uphold Henry's death sentence, a man who once believed the criminal justice system was flawless. At that moment, Lake found himself applauding for Henry's freedom. Leon was seen smiling as a judge spoke the words that would set them free, but Henry seemed to be reflecting on the heartbreak of the past 30 years as he dropped his head and closed his eyes. In the back of the courtroom was Sabrina Bowie's family, who held each other and wept. Sabrina's sister, Tanita Bowie, said she and her family were upset by the release of Henry and Leon, and while she declined to go into detail about the court's decision, she did say she felt like the ruling and timing of the hearing, which was near the anniversary of Sabrina's death, was especially painful. Oh, so they don't believe in their innocence? I I actually looked into it, and I I was trying to figure out exactly what they meant or, like, why they were upset. Mm-hmm. Um, she, unfortunately, passed away. She was only, like, 42, I think. Mm-hmm. Tanita, her sister. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it was a couple of things. Like, it sounds like they were already in a really painful spot because it was about to be, like, their anniversary, the anniversary of mm-hmm. her death. But it sounds like it also felt like them being vacated of their sentence or of their conviction was almost like, okay, so, like, what now? Yeah. Like, so now there's no justice. There's no justice. Yeah. And I, I was hoping that like as time went on, they maybe would say something about it once mm-hmm. they had time to reflect. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything. But you can't fault the brothers for something that they didn't do, especially yeah. when it's so clear cut that there was someone responsible for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was more of just like, this just really sucks. It's a really thing hard thing to have to go through again. Yeah. And, and for 30 years, they thought these guys did it. Yeah. And it's really common for the victim's family to not be able to then wrap their mind around mm-hmm. the fact that someone was wrongfully convicted and sitting in jail innocent for the death of your family member. And now all of a sudden they're free. I also feel like sometimes they f- there's this feeling of suddenly, especially in cases like this, like wrongful convictions, suddenly it's not Sabrina who's being remembered or who's being thought of. It's the yeah. brothers who spent 30 years in jail mm-hmm. wrongfully convicted. It overshadows. Like it, it overshadows what happened to her sister, which I understand. Yeah. But we also need to make sure that there's justice all around. Yes. So this is a really good thing that's happening. Henry and Leon's case, though, is really not a lesson in how wrongful convictions are uncovered as much as it is a warning of how easily they can be missed entirely. Mm -hmm. 
If not for the single cigarette butt, Henry and Leon would likely have remained in prison for the rest of their lives, and Henry might have been executed. In many other cases, such biological evidence has been lost or never existed to begin with, and in those cases, there is no cigarette butt to prove that a confession was false, that a witness lied, or that the police were wrong. Currently, biological evidence is available in less than a third of the approximately 150 cases on North Carolina's death row. In most cases, there will be no independent investigation, no hidden evidence found, and no long-buried truth uncovered. During the nearly three decades before the Innocence Inquiry Commission got involved with Henry's case, Henry had two capital trials, a dozen defense attorneys, and 24 jurors review his evidence. As his case made its way through appeals, more than 20 judges considered the evidence and still the truth remained buried. Truly, in the end, it was just luck that their innocence was ever uncovered. It was luck that Leon, who is severely intellectually disabled, took a fellow inmate's advice and asked the North Carolina Innocence Inquiry Commission to investigate his case. Leon couldn't read or write, so the other inmate had to fill out the form on his behalf. Oh. It was also luck that out of the hundreds of cases referred to the commission each year, it agreed to examine Henry and Leon's case. It was also luck that on the day of the murder, the killer dropped a cigarette butt and that after so many years... That cigarette butt had not been lost or destroyed, Mm -hmm. and it was even luckier still that when the cigarette butt was tested 30 years later, the DNA was in good enough condition to yield the killer's profile. And although DNA finally answered who Sabrina's killer was, it cannot answer how many other prisoners have confessed to crimes that they did not commit or how many are innocent but cannot prove it. In a full circle moment in 2015, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Baer cited Henry's exoneration as a compelling proof that the death penalty is not only error-prone, but unconstitutional. And while the story could end there, there's actually more. On May 18th of this year, a federal jury awarded Henry and Leon $75 million, nearly 40 years after they had Mm. been convicted. The award is not only significant because of the large sum, but because, as we all know, not all exonerees in the United States are guaranteed compensation. No. The federal government, along with Washington, D.C., and only 35 other states offer some form of restitution laws, but advocates say that many of them fall short in compensating people. Henry and Leon decided to file a federal civil rights lawsuit against the government agencies involved in their wrongful conviction, a process that often takes years and is very challenging to win. But a federal jury decided that Henry and Leon should be compensated for their time in prison nearly six years after filing the suit in federal court. The jury awarded them $31 million for each year they were incarcerated. So $31 million each. Mm-hmm. And they'll also receive an additional $13 million in total punitive damages. Good. This is crazy. This is like the biggest sum I've ever mm-hmm. seen for a wrongful conviction. At the trial for their civil case, attorneys for the brothers had to prove that they had been wrongfully convicted and argue that they had been coerced into giving false confessions. Attorney Elliot Abrams and his team presented evidence showing that investigators withheld information in Henry and Leon's initial trial, including the manner in which interrogations were conducted and the existence of another suspect. The money they were awarded in the civil suit will go into funds that will help the men and their families financially. Abram said, A jury has finally given Henry and Leon the ability to close this horrific chapter of their lives. They look forward to a brighter future surrounded by friends, families, and loved ones. Hmm. I also read somewhere that part of the money is going to be used to get them mental health treatment, so something like therapy, Mm -hmm. um, to help them, like, deal 
with what they lived through in prison like one of them was sexually assaulted um you know henry had befriended people in prison yeah or on death row but would see a lot of them die die and so that also took a big toll so i'm i'm happy that they have the means to do it because Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have the means to do it especially after something as traumatic as spending 31 years in jail Mm. prison prison. (laughs) so you know i think the money is is a great thing and it's like the least that we could do absolutely or that can be done to correct these wrongs and you can donate to the north carolina innocence inquiry commission at innocencecommission-nc.gov donate but you can also donate to the innocence project that mm-hmm. helps people everywhere yeah and that's the crazy story of henry mccollum and leon brown that was a good one. That Isn't was really that crazy. It was really sad. I mean, I'm glad that they were able to get the the money at the end of it. But man, 31 years, there's just no compensation for that. That's mm-hmm. my entire life right now. I'm 31. Yeah. Their whole life was taken away. Their youth, their potential families. Yeah, like, everything. They had no opportunity out of life. Yeah. They went in as teenagers and came out as, you know, full on men's mm-hmm. who, you know, are now trying to readjust. I read that they the family was having a hard time with helping them readjust to life on the outside. Yeah. Which now is with the always something and yeah, people people have to deal with when when they come out. It's a but, whole new world thirty one years later. But you also have to take into account that they're intellectually disabled so it's Mm -hmm. like it's it's probably even harder to be able to communicate and trying to help them readjust to all of these changes because everything Mm -hmm. is completely different so i hope i hope the family is able to use this money to to kind of help them with that and yeah and get them into a a place where they're healthy and they're they're happy Mm -hmm. you know because this is something great that happened but it's also a huge chunk of their lives. I'm curious, is there any, have you heard of any like reform or laws trying to be passed to stop like the issues with the investigators and the DA from wrongfully convicting someone? Like I hear about reform with people that are already incarcerated and wrongfully convicted, but how do we get to the root problem of the investigation when they're just ignoring evidence? The article I read, uh, one of the articles that I read mentioned very briefly mm-hmm. that North Carolina had enacted certain like protocols or laws or whatever to help um, decrease like the chances. the chances of something like this happening. But it didn't really say exactly what it was doing. But mm-hmm. I imagine it's a lot of the same stuff that we see with like the eyewitness testimony or false confessions all of those where it's like okay the lineup and you do this and not do this because it could do this i I just don't know what can i mean what can you do people are flawed yeah and you know especially someone that's power hungry like this guy who's just like out to be the deadliest da well that's problem number one right because it's one thing to be a flawed person but it's another to ignore a fingerprint that rules out your suspects Mm -hmm. that's not being flawed that's just straight negligence yeah and i mean nothing can really be done until you go through the trial and then you start the appeals process and then you can bring in all these like brady violations once you get there though yeah you have to go through the entire thing and at that point you you're a convicted felon you're on death row and it's so much harder to then reverse something rather than just doing it right nip it in the butt from the beginning anyways I kind of well, now we're be- mad all over. Yeah. Again. <laughs> we ended on a high note, but now we're pissed. 
like things like that make me want to be an investigator. So I could be like, I'm going to do this right and make sure Mm -hmm. everyone else does it right. But man, like nationwide, I don't know how we can all just get on the same page. I don't know that we can. I don't think so either. But like, I don't see it happening. We have to just tear it all down. Which is what we've talked about yeah. too. That that's you have what people are over. protesting. Yeah. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed the story. <laughs> Hopefully, you're not mad like we are. I always get riled up. Yeah. Thank you guys for being here. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to our podcast and rate and review to help us spread more awareness about these issues. Follow us on social media under Unjustly Podcast, and we will see you next week. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. I will do that again. The perpetrator, uh, perpetrator, 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 perpetrator. When Henry finally came out of the interrogation, no heaven, no heaven, no heaven. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, my mouth is not telling, is not doing what I'm telling it to do.